Tonight, the election results are in. Who were the biggest winners, losers, and upsets? And what does it all mean for New York and the crucial 2024 race? Then, with the Bruce Springsteen archive set for a massive 30,000 square foot expansion, we revisit how the rock icon's biggest fans got the collection started. Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. On a night when abortion rights fueled Democratic wins across the country and hopes for 2024, the party scored several victories in New York, but it wasn't all bad news for Republicans either. In the city council's most closely watched race in southern Brooklyn, Democrat Justin Brennan cruised to victory over Democrat-turned-Republican Ari Kagan in a matchup of two incumbents. One of the major upsets of the election season seems to have unfolded in the East Bronx, where Republican Christy Marmorado declared victory over incumbent Democrat Marjorie Velasquez. If the votes hold up, she'd be the first Bronx GOP council member in decades. Then there is the exonerated Central Park Five member Youssef Salam, who's gone from wrongly imprisoned to representing Central Harlem after winning the Democratic primary and running unopposed last night. Outside the city, Republicans continued turning Long Island red, flipping the Suffolk County Executive's office in what could be a bellwether race for 2024. So joining us now to put it all in perspective is our go-to expert on New York politics, journalist Ben Max. Ben hosts the Max Politics podcast, which is available on the major podcasting platforms. Ben, welcome back to Metro Focus. Thanks, Jenna. Good to be here. Absolutely. So first off, I mean, there was a lot to cover from last night, but I feel like I do want to just give viewers a sense of what the turnout numbers were, like how broad of a swath of voters are we talking about? So I really um, hesitate a little bit to talk about the voter turnout numbers for this election in mm -hmm. part, in any broad numbers, in part because there were roughly a third of city council races where the incumbent was not opposed in the general election or the Democratic nominee in the case of Yusuf Salam was not challenged in the general election. So taking sort of a broad approach to the entire city. I don't think makes a lot of sense. We do know turnout was very low, somewhere in roughly the 10% range, but all eligible voters could have gone out to vote because they could, of course, write in a candidate if they want to. There were the two state ballot questions. Hopefully people flipped over their ballots, but those questions didn't even really apply to New York City directly. So there, in part, it's a challenge because there wasn't that much for some voters to really come out and turn out for. We did see in some of these most competitive city council races more turnout than others. And then in some of the most competitive races, turnout was actually not great. So it varied across the city quite a bit. Well, what do we know now about the balance of power in City Hall? 
So the city council has 51 seats. All of them were up for election this year. Some of those races, as I said, were not particularly competitive, either back in the primary, the general, or both. A lot of incumbents running for re-election. Uh, it turns out in the end that just four incumbents won't be returning to the council. That's still significant in its own way. And there were a couple of upsets in the primary and, and now in the general. But what's very interesting is even though you see the Republicans flip a seat in the Bronx that you mentioned, the way it's all turning out here, the balance of power in the city council is going to stay basically the same. 45 Democrats, six Republicans. There are two or three conservative Democrats who caucus with Republicans and mostly vote with them. But you still have this vast, vast Democratic supermajority in the New York City Council and the balance of power not really changing here via these elections. One of the most interesting races that you mentioned was Justin Brannon against Ari Kagan in Southern Brooklyn because of the way redistricting went. Two sitting city councils members wound up facing each other. Kagan switched his party affiliation to challenge Brannon in the general election as opposed to the primary. Brannon won by a far wider margin than anyone expected, I think, including his own campaign. And that's very interesting in part in terms of the balance of power because Brannon is a member of the council leadership. He's chair of the finance committee. This is a Southern Brooklyn area where Republicans have won some recent races for state assembly. So that was a really interesting bellwether that the Democratic incumbent in this case was able to hold by a wide margin. So there's very interesting examples dotting across the city that speak to some of the questions around balance of power. But uh -huh. overall, the city council is going to stay about about the same in terms of Democrats versus Republicans, 45 to 6. So if city council stays about the same, does this give us any indication of what we can expect uh, legislation wise from City Hall? Because we didn't really see the mayor on the campaign trail with a lot of these Democrats. So one thing that's interesting is that the city council speaker, Adrian Adams, who did not face a tough reelection herself, uh, and she'll have to be reelected by her council members in January once the new council is seated here. And that's all but certain to happen. Mm -hmm. She's more of a moderate, you know, you would say in some ways, a sort of liberal to moderate uh, and in some cases more centrist Democrat, similar to Mayor Adams. However, the city council does have a fairly big progressive caucus of about 20 council members and does lean a little further to the left than the mayor. But I don't think we're going to see a lot of changes in those dynamics because, as I said, things are pretty much staying about the same. So it'll be probably over these next two years, a little bit more still of this push and pull between the city council that's a little bit more towards the progressive end of the spectrum and the more centrist mayor and Eric Adams as we get into 2025, where the mayor will be up for re-election and the city council will fully be back on the ballot yet again because of how everything unfolds after the census and redistricting. Of course. And I do want to circle back to 2025, but uh Talking about things that might be staying the same or shifting, um, did we learn anything from two of the races that really focused on Latino voters and Asian voters? So one thing that was really interesting is most of the uh, highly competitive races that were on the ballot here, there was only about a half dozen. Several of them were really focused in districts with large Asian American populations, including mm -hmm. this brand new district in Brooklyn, the 43rd district, which was created based on census numbers as a quote unquote Asian opportunity district. And the Democrat, Susan Zhuang, won that seat. So she will now be joining uh, the city council as a brand new member for this newly created seat. But across the board in a lot of these districts, we didn't see 
seemingly further movement towards the right, towards Republicans from Asian American voters and others in the city. There have been gains for Republicans in recent years, but it looks like, again, in a low turnout off your election, there's not that many things we want to conclude from this, but it looks like there was a little bit of a ceiling hit in terms of Republican gains. There's also a big difference here, it seems, between when there's a major Republican candidate at the top of the ticket helping to move votes, like a Lee Zeldin for governor or mm-hmm. even a Curtis for mayor. So there's some differences there. And in these city council races, things become very localized and very dependent on get out the vote efforts and all of that, where Democrats have mostly big advantages. Okay. Now, circling back to your point about 2025, which I know is hard because everybody's so focused on next year, 2024. But um, do we, is there any indication as to whether or not we could see a primary challenge to Mayor Adams, perhaps from city council coming from the left? So I think the possibility of a challenge to Mayor Adams in the Democratic primary in 2025 from his left, and that doesn't have to necessarily mean the far left, but mm-hmm. from his left, which is a very big sort of section of Democrats because he's more of a moderate to centrist. But I think some challenge from his left is almost inevitable. Uh, who it's going to come from is a big open question mark. Uh, I recently wrote about these dynamics for New York Magazine, talking to a lot of progressives, liberals, and moderates. And there's big, big dis- dissatisfaction with Mayor Adams from the progressive left, But the question is, can people identify a candidate to unite the sort of more liberal left and the further progressive left behind somebody who can sort of run in that big territory and unite all those Democrats against an incumbent mayor who will be very, very powerful, most likely come his reelection bid? Now, obviously, the FBI just raided his chief fundraiser's uh, apartment, and we don't know where that's going to go or any other number of scandals that either are already underway or or could happen. Uh, so a lot could change, but there's a lot of discussion about trying to challenge the mayor from the left in 2025. Uh, but as you as you got at, one of the biggest question is who will actually step up to do it? And, there, and there's major question marks around those possible names. Of course. You know, I want to uh, zoom out a little bit from the city and just uh, for a moment touch on what happened in Long Island, because it seems as if Long Island is uh, red at this point. Long Island, uh, especially with the Suffolk County Executive's Office flipping now from Democrat to Republican. And it's important to note the longtime incumbent Suffolk County Executive was not on the ballot. He was term limited out. So that's a Mm -hmm. that's a major opening for Republicans to continue their gains. And they did. And this is one of the only areas of the entire New York state that has been moving more Republican in recent years, but it's been doing it in a pretty big way. So Long Island is going further red. In some ways, it's been a little bit of a surprise that Democrats have been able to hold on to the county executive seat in Suffolk for as long as as they did. Um, So we're definitely seeing some shifts there while Westchester and some of the Hudson Valley suburbs have become a bit more blue. So, you know, the shifting trends of of New York politics are are always happening in some way. And we've even seen some Republican gains, as we've talked about, in parts of New York City. Uh, But Long Island seemingly heading further and further uh, to the right. I'm also wondering, uh, because a few days ago we spoke with um, the Siena College poll and they were sort of telling us about what were the issues that they were finding that New Yorkers seem to be most concerned about. And of course, the migrant crisis, crime. Um, and I'm wondering how much those played out or if there's any way to tell, at least as of right now, based on how campaigns were run, how heavily those issues weighed on voters 
who did turn out? So I think one of the, to me, surprising and most interesting aspects of at least the New York City Council races was that the migrant crisis, concerns about crime, which of course has overall been dropping now over the last year or so, um, don't seem to have given Republicans the type of boost that they thought that those issues would. For example, there was a lot of high hopes among Republicans that these issues would help Ari Kagan win in that race in Southern Brooklyn or the Republican nominee Ying Tan win in the newly created Asian Opportunity District I was mentioning. Both those races, the Democratic candidates who hewed more moderate, pulled those out by wide margins. And that was a little bit surprising. Um, now, in Eastern Queens, there was a really interesting race where Council Member Vicky Palladino, a pretty far right Republican, was trying to hold off Democrat Tony Avella, who used to represent the area, and she barely beat him in 2021, and she beat him by a wide margin. So again, speaking to some of the sort of localized issues, the power of incumbency, but I really, it, it was really interesting to see in New York City that the migrant crisis doesn't seem to have really given a huge boost to Republicans. In the Suffolk County executive race, clearly uh, Republicans and, and centrists and independents on Long Island have been moving further to the right around issues like crime, maybe some concerns about the migrant crisis, although I don't think that's impacted Suffolk County in a big way at this point. But there's obviously always discussions about what happens in New York City moving on to Long Island, whether that's truly happening or not. All right. Well, there's definitely a lot to follow very quickly, though, before we leave. Everyone's been talking about the race in Harlem and the win of uh, Yusuf Salam. Just your quick thoughts with about 10 seconds left. Well, it's just such a significant moment for him to start uh, representing in January Harlem in the city council. And it'll be very interesting how he takes on, especially issues related to criminal justice that are, of course, so close to him and his background as a member of the exonerated five. All right. Well, Ben, we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for joining us again on Metro Focus and giving us some much needed context for understanding election night. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jenna. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. If you know anything about music icon Bruce Springsteen, you know that he's a Jersey guy. Mostly the Jersey Shore, to be precise. So, might not be a surprise to learn that the Bruce Springsteen archives have found a home there at Monmouth University. But you might be surprised at the extent of the archives, how they arrived at their home at Monmouth, and how the project has expanded to now constitute the Bruce Springsteen Archives and Center for American Music. The archives and center provide a fascinating collection of artifacts, exhibits, and programs for fans, scholars, historians, and the Simply Curious. Joining us now to talk about the creation of the archives in the center and what they have to offer is Bob Santelli, the executive director and Grammy award-winning music historian, producer, and educator. And I should note a friend of mine from many years back from our days at Point Pleasant Beach High School. Bob, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jack. So how and why did the idea of gathering up the Bruce Springsteen archives and placing them at a particular location come about? The Bruce Springsteen archives has its origins actually in Asbury Park. There was an organization of fans called Friends of Bruce Springsteen that began to assemble photographs, newspaper articles, magazines, etc., and put them in Asbury Park Library. The Asbury Park Library couldn't handle it in terms of its size, 
um, myself and uh, my colleague Eileen Chapman, we got involved and realized that this was too valuable to have it simply disappear or or not have it uh, at the um, disposal of people. So we moved it to Monmouth University and uh, Monmouth University was very um, receptive to the idea. They gave us a place uh, to store the materials. And from that point on, which was about eight or nine years ago, the collection has grown significantly to the point now we're up to 37,000 pieces. Let's talk a little bit about Monmouth University as the repository. Why did that work as the location? Jack, you know, Monmouth works simply because of two or three reasons. Number one is that Bruce Springsteen's earliest fan base, when Monmouth University was Monmouth College, that's where the fans came from. Yeah. A few blocks away from Monmouth University, Bruce wrote Born to Run, maybe his most famous song. When I was a student at Monmouth University, then Monmouth College, I must have seen Bruce play Oh, a couple of dozen times in the at the university or at the college at the time. Uh, so his roots are very strong there. Plus, we wanted to be established with a um, academic institution. Monmouth University on the Jersey Shore is it. It just made total sense. And it has been. I should note, you mentioned that that you went there, you, you taught there. I've taught there in the past. I was on the board for a few years, many years back, and it's become, it's grown. It's become a nationally yeah. recognized doctoral um, institution with so many facilities. And this obviously is part of that. And I mentioned in, in the introduction that we have the Bruce Springsteen archives, which makes sense, but also the Center for American Music. How did that component come about? When we really um, began to be ambitious about what the Bruce Springsteen archives could be, I went to Bruce and, and said, uh, Bruce, you know, in addition to this collection that we have here, I have bigger, bolder, more ambitious ideas for this collection. And I, I explained it to Bruce what we wanted to do. And he, he was very silent. I was talking to him and uh, I couldn't tell whether he was receptive to the idea or not. Uh, at the end, he said, well, you know, it's a great thing that you're doing. However, putting all the attention on me is not right. I'm a chapter in the ongoing story of American music. If we can enlarge this to make it more encompassing, this make the story bigger, of which I am a part, that would work. And quite honestly, Jack, that's what I had in mind all along. I always envisioned Bruce basically being the uh, the catalyst or, or the poster boy, if you will, for this institution on American music because he he represents so many aspects of it. And so uh, we started to broaden the idea and uh, included now exhibitions, not just collections, but exhibitions, public programs, educational workshops, et cetera. So we're almost a full-blown institution now, the kind that we envisioned about six or seven years ago when I first went to him with the idea. I would suspect that when people hear that story, they would be surprised, especially at the element of somebody as big a star as Bruce Springsteen saying, no, no, no. I don't want this to be all about me. I am a part of something bigger. As you know, you've been involved in the, the, the Grammy Museum, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As I mentioned, you're a music historian and educator. Were you surprised to hear him say, no, not just me. I want this to be much more expansive. You know, I, I really wasn't, Jack. And the reason why is I, I've known Bruce a long time as my uh, during my time when I was the Asbury Park Press music critic and first got to know him many years ago. Um, 
he he always came across as an amateur music historian, if you will. His knowledge of American music and his love of it, very strong. And he realizes uh, that he is a, a part of it. He is a big part, however, especially in the 20th century, of course. When you look at um, you know the titans or the big icons of American music, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, uh, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan, Bruce's name is on there. And and so having someone that powerful come to us and say, you know what? It's not all about me. The story's bigger. The story that's bigger needs to be told. I'd love to be a part of it, but the story's bigger. Yeah. Again, if you know, and I, I know Bruce just a little bit, but if you if you know him, it might be surprising to the rest of the world, but if you know him, it's not surprising there. Right. Let, let's talk about the process now of gathering up, as you said, more than 30,000 items and artifacts. How did you go about doing that? And then how did you go about positioning it physically at yeah. Monmouth University? Many of the pieces that we have, nearly all of them, Jack, are are basically donations. Um, fans who have been collectors of, of Bruce Springsteen memorabilia or tapes or photographs, whatever, they get up there in age, they realize their collection has served them personally for a number of years, but now they're looking for a a place to put it permanently. And they hear about us, they contact us. What we do essentially is we review what they have. Uh, you know, the, we don't want to be a repository for someone's addict, right? You know, where, <laughs> all they do is, yeah, I have all this stuff, take it. Uh, it's more formal than that. In the early days, maybe that would work, but not anymore. I and mean, we're, we're simply bursting at the seams right now. We have so much. Plus, we have all of Bruce's archives as well. And so when you add all of that up, it is a tremendous amount of material. In addition to the actual three-dimensional objects, as we say, we have a very large digital collection of interviews and oral histories and tapes and, and performances. So it's a, a full-fledged institution where it's not just about collections of photographs and magazines. It's far more than that. And it's going to require one of these days for us to, to grow and expand and, and, and actually find a new home somewhere on the Monmouth campus. Because I have to tell you, if you were to walk into where we are right now, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a home that we have basically transformed into a, an archival space. Um, we actually have collections in the bathtub. I guess that's the good news and the bad news. The good news is you have so much. The bad news is you have so much that you have that's to right. utilize exactly. the bathtub. Exactly. Let me ask about some of the other things that, that the archives and the, and the center do, because I, I mentioned you know, it's a collection, an, yeah. an archival collection, but I also talked about exhibits and programs. Tell us a little bit about some of that. Well, you know, that's where the idea, the ambitious idea came from that I mentioned before. We didn't want to be just a, a collection, uh, a repository, an archives. The traditional archives basically preserves and celebrates a particular artist or historical aspect, whatever. We wanted to put that to good use. And the idea that I presented to Bruce was we want to be active. We don't want to be a passive institution. And that would mean having concerts. That would mean having seminars, symposium, workshops, outreach with exhibitions. So for instance, right now we have an exhibition on Bruce Springsteen in Los Angeles called Bruce Springsteen Live, which celebrates Bruce as a live performer. Next week in Boston, we'll open up a Bob Dylan exhibit uh, that the, the archives, the Bruce Springsteen archives curated. It's a traveling exhibition on Dylan, one of Bruce Springsteen's main influences. 
Just this past weekend, we held a, a major symposium at Monmouth University celebrating, as you said, the 50th anniversary of Greetings from Asbury Park. 600 people attended the night before a sold out concert in Red Bank featuring one of the original E Street Band pianists, David Sanchez. So we're very, very active, not just in the collecting phase, but also in the um, experiential phase and the educational phase as well. I'm curious, and, and you and I talked about this briefly, but I'm curious about what drew you here. And you've touched on it a little bit, but as I mentioned before, you're you're a, a, a um, Grammy award-winning uh, music historian, producer, and educator. Uh, you were the executive director of the Grammy Museum. You were intimately involved in the creation of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So you've done a lot around the country. What What made you come home to this? Yeah. My wife keeps asking me that as well, Jack. And, and I, you know, it's a, it's a pretty clear answer to me. Number one, uh, I'm, I'm a Jersey guy and uh, my whole life uh, has been somehow, some way connected to New Jersey music, New Jersey culture. I'm a Jersey Shore guy, as you are too, growing up on the Jersey Shore. Very, very special place for me, for you and for Bruce. Right? I went to Monmouth University, then Monmouth College. It's where I got my start as a journalist. I won't forget that. I taught there. And then quite honestly, I... Um, you know, I, I have to say, as a music journalist, I rode Bruce Springsteen's coattails, Jack, to be honest with you. In the 70s, when I was just getting started, you know, he made himself available. Uh, I got the interviews. I wrote a book with Max Weinberg, the E Street Band drummer. I actually worked on Bruce's first book with him called Songs. It's given me a lot of opportunities. And so what I figured is my payback, my, my sense of um, showing my appreciation for all of that, for the state, for the region, for the university, for Bruce, is to create, use my skill set to create something that's long lasting, that's beneficial to him, to the state, to the region, to the university. And this is it. And so, you know, it might be my swan song, so to speak, but it's an important one, maybe the most important one for me. I got about 45 seconds here. So I'm going to ask you one quick question, but important question. And that is, what, what is your vision for what this might become? It's going to become a nationally recognized institution. When I found out on Friday, on Saturday, that people came from Dublin, from London, from California to attend this, I realized the potential was pretty, pretty incredible. And of course, with Bruce going on tour starting next month, the attention to him and the E Street Band will only elevate and, and accentuate what we're doing at the at the uh, archives. And the hope is that we find a place on America's cultural landscape and, and make a contribution. I want it to be useful. I want it to be important for him and to future Bruce Springsteen fans and scholars. Well, I think it'll it's there already and it's on the way to something bigger and better. The Bruce Springsteen Archives and Center for American Music located at Monmouth University. Bob Santelli, um, good friend. Bob, always good to talk with you and congratulations on what you're doing. And we'll keep an eye on it as it continues to grow. You be well now. Thank you, Jack. You too. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.